questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. There is another force in the universe of our reality, another context for comprehending what has been going on for millennia, and especially in the last 70 years. Secret Machines is the result of input from scientists, engineers, intelligence officers, and military officials, a group we call the advisors, and transcends the speculation of journalists, historians, and others whose conclusions are often either misinformed or only tease around the edges of the secret machines. The phenomenon is not what they think it is. It is, in fact, much more serious and potentially much more threatening than they can imagine. Greetings, I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. Subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to this full interview and all of our material. Tonight, we discuss gods, man, and war, an official secret machines investigation of the UFO phenomenon with our special guest, Peter Lavenda, a veteran of this radio program and a native of the Bronx, New York. Peter has lived or traveled all over the United States and the world in the course of his life, work, and research. As an executive with an American telecommunications manufacturer, he was based in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, for more than seven years. Before that, he was one of the first Americans to do business successfully in China. He has an MA in Religious Studies and Asian Studies from FIU and speaks a variety of languages, some of them dead. And we have a more comprehensive bio right on our website. And directly from South Florida, I believe he's still there, I'd like to welcome Peter Lavenda. Hello, Peter, and welcome back to Veritas. How are you? Hello, Mel. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And are you still in South Florida? Yes, I am. Okay, good. I said that right. Well, Peter, you co-wrote the book Guts, Man, and War, an official secret machines investigation of the UFO phenomenon with Blink-182's frontman and recipient of the UFO Researcher of the Year Award, Tom DeLong. Tell us about your experience working with Tom DeLong in writing the book. Well, it was a little surreal. Um, you know, uh, I, I knew who he was. I mean, I knew the band um, a little bit after my time, you might say, musically, but I, I was very well aware of him. <laughs> And uh, when I got the first contact, I thought it was a hoax, basically. I thought someone was just, you know, trying to fool me. Uh, but, it, you know, I did enough background research and all the rest of it and realized that I really was in contact with Tom DeLong, And he was very sincere about this project. Um, this is something that he had been, you know, involved with in one way or another for most of his life. He was has had a lifelong fascination with the subject. And I believe he came across... Um, the presentation that I did in Amsterdam some years ago on the secret space program. Oh, I remember. And then I think from there, he sort of found out what I was writing about in Sinister Forces and, and all of that. So he decided I'd be the person that he would want to work with, especially when it came to all the nonfiction uh, aspects of this very broad project that he was envisioning. And he wanted really to do some serious research in ways that perhaps had not been done before because he was going to take a completely different approach to the problem of ufology or UFO research. And as we talked about it and talked about it, I felt more and more comfortable with the direction he wanted to go in. It seemed to me like he was doing something a little different uh, where ufology was concerned. And he uh, he was interested in, in having a solid uh, nonfiction almost quasi-academic approach to the material that would uh, really reveal this phenomenon in more in more dimensions, let's say, and in, in a larger palette of colors to really understand what this is rather than there was a flying saucer, it came down, and a little green man jumped out. He wanted to go much further than that. He wanted to go uh, and try to find out really what this was and what other people knew about it. And so his approach was quite different, and it's something that I thought was might work. And uh, so we got involved in this project, and we've been working on it uh, ever since. It's been, I guess, over two years now. Honestly, the book is seriously, seriously written, as you say. As you say, it's not uh, you don't talk about little green man jumping out of a spaceship. It's very serious. It's written almost like a you know like an academic. So I'm glad to see a book like that out there now. Now, for those who may not know the term, please define secret machine secret with a K 
which sounds like mystical. I'm sure it's it's deliberate, isn't it? It is. Um, that that uh, that spelling was totally Tom's idea. He he called this project Secret Machines from the very very beginning, from the very first time I spoke with him. He was referring to it that way, and the K has a lot of different implications. Um, in the first case, uh, spelling secret this way is kind of a street way of spelling secret. Uh, he, of course, is is talking to a younger generation, uh, those who are under 40, perhaps under 30. So he was looking at, you know, his, his background is, of course, uh, music. He's been a musician for all of his life. Yeah. He's Southern California, um, you know, the skateboard sort of crowd and, and people like that. So the secret was meant to to reflect the youthful approach to the to the subject matter on the one hand, but it also has other implications. And as I research more deeply the word secret uh, and trying to to understand some more some of the nuance that we were trying to achieve with it, um, I, I realized that of course in Greek uh, the word secret is mystikos, and mystikos is the same word we get the the root of the, our word mystic or mysticism, or mystical. So. A machine that is at once secret and at the same time mystical. It seemed to it seemed to wrap in that in that one term a lot of what we were trying to say about uh, the experience of the UFO in general. It's a machine. Um, it has machine-like qualities or characteristics on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's not a machine like we've ever seen or experienced before ourselves. Not like a machine we've built before. It's something very, very different. And there's a mystical aspect to it because of a lot of the people who've been involved as UFO experiencers or people who've had uh, even tangential contact with this phenomenon always come away with some kind of weird mystical reaction to it, a religious, almost spiritual reaction in many cases, the experience of awe, the experience sometimes of terror, the experience of something otherworldly. How can a machine be otherworldly, you know, since we credit ourselves with having built and developed machines in, in human civilization? They're the, the natural uh, endpoint of what we've been doing with, with science and technology. And yet here's a machine that we have not built, that we have not designed, that is by its very definition otherworldly. So all of that is wrapped up in that concept of secret machines. Well, I'm glad Tom is on board in the UFO community and, and joining forces with serious, serious researchers like you, Peter, because I think we need an influx of a younger crowd. No offense to all my colleagues or the attendees at, at conferences, but you hardly see a young crowd at these conferences, and I've always wondered why. We need you know, an influx of, of a younger crowd to take the torch in the future, don't you think? Well, I, I firmly believe that, and I think that... Um I was gratified we had a, a kind of small rollout of what we were doing uh, in Encinitas uh, near San Diego a couple of months ago. And, of course, it's Tom DeLonge and it's Blink-182. So the crowd was largely young people. It looked like college-age uh, kids for the most part. So that was very gratifying to see. And they were very interested in the subject matter. They weren't just – they're trying to get their guitars autographed, you know. They were actually there because they wanted to know about what was this project and why was it important, and why did we feel it was it was that important. Um, the the young people are going to bring something to this. They're going to bring an energy and a and a, a willingness to see a problem from different angles, um, from different dimensions, and that's what's kind of needed right now. The people who've been in this subject for a long time, for twenty, thirty, forty years. Uh, are pretty much they they're they're at where they're going to be without you know naming names or getting too you know nasty about it, which is not my intention yeah. at all. I'm not trying to say they're a bunch of old fuddy duddies. I, I don't want to be quoted <laughs> saying that. But what it is is that they're they they have been embedded in this for so long that sometimes it's hard to see the forest for the trees, and we just want the extra input. We're not saying. The old experts are wrong by any stretch of the imagination. But what we are saying is that maybe a fresh perspective on this is what we need. Just a new way of looking at the problem, especially people who've grown up with technology, uh, people who grew up with smartphones, people who grew up with the Internet. Um, I, I, have, I keep finding myself having to, to remind people that I did not, you know, when I was born – 
we had a black and white television set with a seven inch screen and a box that weighed about 300 pounds. Um, it, this was, there was no internet. There was no personal computer. Uh, there were no flat screen TVs. There was none of this existed. And it, you get a certain mindset when you, when you grow up that way and you start to bring on the internet and bring on the computers, the personal computers and, and the smartphones and, and bring it on this way. You accommodate it with the rest of your background, with the rest of how you grew up. But we're now talking about people who grew up with, uh, internet access. And, you know, Wi-Fi and smartphones. And it's that sensitivity, it's that kind of understanding of technology that maybe is what we need to look at this entire subject again and come away with some new perspectives. You know, that is so true what you just said. And we're the last generation to have one foot in this technological world with iPhones, computers, and so on, and another foot in the non-technological world Growing up, my best technology was a black and white TV with a, a clothes hanger as an antenna. So there take it from there. Now, Muse, there's another band out there, very popular one, that wrote you know songs like uh, Exopolitics. They seem to write the songs and the lyrics, but they don't come out as Tom DeLonge did. And I wonder why. Is it because they, they fear ridicule and they just you know venting what they want via their, their lyrics? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, there's a lot of there's still a lot of, you know, uh, fear associated with coming out with this type of material. I mean, I had I had I'm, uh, you know, I, I represent that. I mean, because a lot of people told me when I first became involved with this project, although I had written about uh, the UFO phenomenon in Sinister Forces right. and I had made that presentation in Amsterdam that was really more focused on the historical aspects of it and the connection of various people involved in ufology who are also involved in politics and in the United States primarily. So I was looking at it from that point of view, which is kind of safe. But now to get involved with, with Tom and this project, people cautioned me. They said, man, you're going to ruin your reputation and your credibility if you get involved in the little green men thing, you know, and the UFOs and all of that. And I thought to myself, yeah, well, maybe it's possible, but I'm not bringing anything to this except myself and my background. So why should I be afraid of that? Why should I be feel that my credibility is, uh, is, is in danger? It only would be in danger if I made stuff up. You know, or if I claimed knowledge I did not have, or if I, you know, was was a complete tr true believer in anything and everything that came down the pike where this is concerned, and I'm not. I believe, let's say, if you want to use the term belief, which is a loaded term, and I don't really like to use it. Let's say I accept the existence of UFOs and of the phenomenon in general because of the evidence not because I've had an experience or because I've seen a UFO, which I have not, um, not because I've seen aliens, which I have not. I base my reaction to the subject based on, on the evidence, which is voluminous, uh, certainly enough you know, to, to, to take to court and, you know, and to prove a case as far as I'm concerned. So I bring that kind of sensitivity to it. Uh, we proceed on the assumption that this phenomenon is something real, represents reality represents a real thing a real experience and if we accept it from the beginning um what does that mean what are the implications if we all accept okay there's there's the ufo phenomenon there are these things in the sky people do have these experiences they have direct experiences with with other uh, life forms let's say or any of this w what are the implications of that we have to move on from there we can't keep trying to prove it all the time. To me, that was a dead end. And I think for Tom also, the, the insistence that we're going to keep proving, we're going to prove this is real. I mean, my goodness, there are hundreds of books. There's thousands of declassified files. There's all sorts of sightings. There's no need to prove it. There is a need maybe to explain it. There is a need to understand it and a need to wonder what the implications are for our culture and our society in general. And we want to start from there. We want to go from there into, you know, into unknown territory, because too many of us are caught in this cycle of, let's prove it, let's, let's get all the sightings in one book, you know, let's make it impossible for someone to say, there's nothing to it. Well, we're on board, we know, we're there. Okay, now what? 
where do we go from there? And we find that's where a lot of people sort of stall out. They've spent their entire uh, lives trying to prove this exists uh, or are waiting for disclosure from the government, you know, from from, you know, an official person to come and say, yes, you know, uh, you know, we bless you. You know, yes, this is true. We give it the imprimatur and the nihil obstat, you know, in Catholic terms. We, we're, we're giving you the seal of approval. Yes, there's UFOs. Well, OK, now what? You know, so we're at the now what phase. What is this? What does this imply? What are the implications? Um, is this dangerous? Is this benign? Um, what does it mean for all of us? Is, is there a threat to national security? All of these are the questions that we started asking right away without waiting for someone to show us, you know, a dead alien body or a piece of a flying saucer. And we'll discuss the disclosure part coming from government, which I think is a notion that perhaps is a little bit old. I think the notion that only governments have the monopoly of contact and disclosure has to be revisited. But let's yes. begin. Did governments, Peter, begin a disinformation campaign thousands of years ago, back when religions were first formed? I don't think it was a disinformation campaign. I think that people were struggling with the experience of having contact with something otherworldly. I, I'm calling it a UFO contact, basically, that there was a there was this initial point of contact for civilizations when they were confronted with this, and they did not have the language. They did not have the vocabulary to describe it. They didn't have a context for it. And so a lot of these stories that we, we inherited from our ancestors in terms of religion were attempts to describe this contact in the best ways they knew how. And that's what we got. We got all sorts of bits and pieces of information. It's like the blind men with the elephant, you know, so everybody had a piece of this. Everybody had some experience of this contact that they were trying then to describe. I don't think it was disinformation, really. I think it was just the inability of people to really come to terms with it. And this may be a key to understanding what's going on today as well with government and with the military. Is it purely disinformation? There's definitely been disinformation. There's no question about it. In the 20th century, uh, in particular, in the last 70 years, there have been you know disinformation uh, programs, I think, that were in place to manipulate or control this data for a lot of reasons, which we get into eventually in our, our trilogy of books on this. But I don't think initially it was disinformation. I think that the contact was made. No one could control that message. There was no government in place you know, to say you didn't see what you saw, you know, um, that this is something, you know, this is something else. This is not for you. This is, you know, you, you're not allowed to know about this. I don't think that happened initially. I think that it was a kind of traumatic event. And I think that like with any trauma victim, you keep reliving that event. You keep trying to make sense of it. You keep trying to get to the bottom of it to neutralize its effect on you. And I think that as as a as a human race, we've been doing that since that initial point of contact. The only what you're saying is true makes you wonder if this is what we have this catastrophobia and this is why Hollywood, with the exception of maybe E.T. and, you know, Starman and some other movies, usually it's something that destroys the world. And this is why we have this fear. But I'm going to be jumping around because I have a lot of notes here. Did we invent God to account for our spiritual need to touch the stars. From my point of view, and, and I make that sort of obvious in the very opening pages of Secret Machines, Gods, from my point of view, we are, um, I don't say that we've created gods to explain this. I think gods was our way of explaining what this was. Um, we measured ourselves as human beings, as homo sapiens, against this contact, and the contact seemed to be more powerful than us. It seemed to be wiser than us, to have more knowledge or more capability than we have, and so we had to find a way to designate this contact. We had to find a frame to put around it, because whatever this was, if, these, if this contact had the effect of looking like 
beings, like creatures, like, uh, you know, people with two arms and two legs, maybe, you know, our image and likeness, you know, um, to use the biblical phrase, then they were beings that were superior to us. They were uh, somewhere down on the evolutionary scale beyond us because they they could do things we could not do. I think it was as simple as that. You know, they could, uh, you know, run faster or fly or they were stronger. They could lift things or whatever it happened to be. I'm, I'm sort of breaking it down into very, you know, discrete parts. But if they arrived on a craft, if they arrived on some type of machine, um, our ancient ancestors did not have the machine. They didn't even have the wheel. And suddenly there is something appearing out of the heavens, um, striking fear initially. I think, into everyone, um, because our experience of the other uh, to that point had been restricted to predators. Uh, so was this a predator that showed up on the planet? Um, you know, w- what are the implications of that? Did they, were they completely benign? Were they hostile? Obviously, there was something about that initial contact that made us want to relive it over and over again. So there must have been something positive about it. There must have been a positive aspect to it that we we had, but at the same time, there was an element of fear associated with it. And that sounds like God in a lot of cultures, you know, a uh, being that is very powerful, that inspires fear, but also inspires this desire to keep reliving the experience. So if there was a kind of religious aspect to it. Um, I don't think I don't think religion per se existed at that point until that time. Um, I think religion, anyway, is a concept that's relatively new. Um, we associate ancient religions with their cultures. We don't, we don't separate them out. If you were living in ancient Egypt, no one asked you what your religion was. You know, that just was not a concept. You were in ancient Egypt, so there was Isis and Osiris and Horus and all the other, the panoply of Egyptian gods. This was part of your culture. It was who you were. It was your architecture. It was your literature, your music, your political system. Um, all of that was part and parcel of your entire cultural experience. It was not separated into boxes. So I think that this, the, the idea of religion is relatively new. And I think it came after this point of contact, the idea that there's a spirituality, um, that there is maybe life after death, that there is a connection between immortality and traveling to the stars. I think all this came about because of that initial contact. Reliving the experiences. And we'll discuss the pyramids later. We have a lot of material to discuss about that. But it makes you wonder if all these megalithic structures that we see around the world, you know, all the pyramids, the, the stepped pyramids, if the people had contact, the let's call them the aliens or the visitors, whatever, they left and they were so fascinated by it that they created these structures in order to relive or to call them again. But we'll discuss that later. Now, Dr. Jacques Vallée, he wrote the foreword to the book. What does he mean when he says that UFO can be known only by not asking what it is? <laughs> yeah. Of course, that's kind of a Zen statement. <laughs> yeah. And Jacques is kind of well known for those at, at times. Um when we ask what it is, we are, it's, it's going to be kind of hard to get your mind around, but we're making certain assumptions. Um, once we ask what it is, we're, we're saying that there's a thing, there's this object about which we can you know, discuss its identity, its characteristics, and all the rest of it, and that's where you start to get lost. Um, I know that's hard, it's a hard idea to grasp, um, but it's sort of, you know, you might come across this in philosophy courses. <laughs> um, it, this is an idea that if you look at something directly, you're not going to see it. You kind of have to look around it to begin to understand what the phenomenon is. Um, that's why we're taking so much time with this. We're criticized, I know, uh, in a lot of places because people are saying, well, you know, you're taking three books. Why don't you just come out and say what it is? Um, we can't, not because we don't want to. But because to communicate what this is, you need a lot of context. You need to start thinking differently about things like reality, consciousness, um, you know, the third dimension and the fourth dimension. You need to sort of get beyond 
certain basic assumptions that we make about reality. Because if I start using regular terminology to explain something, we all have in our heads our own little dictionaries. And we all think we know what all this terminology means. And that's where the confusion gets in. It's like the Tower of Babel, but created around only one language. We all have this one language, and that essentially makes us think we know what we're talking about, and we don't. It's that one language that's actually tripping us up, because we're all making assumptions that we know what a UFO is. Because once you say the word UFO, everybody has a whole list of associations that they make with it. And it's little green men and it's flying saucers, for instance, or it's something out of E.T. or Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's all the cultural stuff that comes with it. It's all the biases and prejudices against the subject that come with it. It's just a lot of baggage. I and was going to say, the biases, exactly. It's the biases. And we have to get past the biases. We have to help people to think differently about this subject entirely. I mean, I've, I've been listening to people on and off on some of the late night radio shows. I've been on those late night podcasts and radio shows, and I, 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 I'm frustrated with the, the difficulty with which people have to approach the subject matter because they often think they're talking about one thing, but they're usually talking about two or three. And but they don't under they don't see it because they're talking about you know a, a UFO sighting or an event, but there's so much that went with it. There are so many things that happened ancillary to that initial event that they've all lumped together as one thing, and they're trying to explain that one thing, and it becomes really difficult to do. So what what Jacques Vallée meant with this, I believe, and what we're trying to do is consistent. We're saying. We are explaining what this is, but it's, it's not like you come out with a statement and a press release, which is what everybody's waiting for. They're waiting for this disclosure press release, you know, whether it's from us or it's from the government or, you know, the president or the generals in the military or whatever. They're waiting for this one thing that's going to clear it all up. The problem is it's not going to go away that way. It's not going to get cleared up that easily because everyone we've spoken with has come back with you know, the strangest ways of trying to explain what this is. And they're trying to be very sincere and they're, they're really trying to help us out in getting, you know, a, um, a reasonable description and characterization of the phenomenon. But every time it gets to that point, it kind of drifts over into a kind of a mystical statement or, or series of statements or they fall back on language that they're they're struggling to describe and they're using you know terms from greek mythology or you know i mean it's it's bizarre if you go back and look and i always tell people you have to do this if you really want to understand the difficulty go back to 1952 go back to those sightings over washington dc in july of 52 and read the statement that was made by the general sanford at the time when he gave his press conference to all these journalists who wanted to know about the UFOs that were flying over Washington, D.C., he falls back into that language. He starts talking about religion. He starts talking about the Bible. You know, he starts, he's, I mean, he's struggling for words to describe what's going on, and he's describing the paranormal. I mean, this is a, this is a guy with stars on his shoulder. This is an Air Force general, and he's there with Ramey, who was there at Roswell, right? He was the guy in charge of that whole Michigas back in 47. So there's Ramey and Sanford and all of these generals, and they're giving a press conference. And Alan Hynek is there in the audience, among others. You know, all of these people are there, and they're taking notes. And the general is talking about the Bible. And this is, this is, we keep coming across this all the time. We come across this reaction, which is you've got to look at something that's not just the machinery or the equipment, because there's another level of sophistication here and the closest we can come to it is talking about religion and mythology and the paranormal so when we got together and we decided okay this is how we're going to structure this project the first book in the series was about religion because we have to start there and we have to start with maybe challenging some ideas about religion challenging some preconceptions we're not going after religion we're not attacking it what we're trying to do is say maybe religion itself has some of the keys to this if we look dispassionately at their scriptures, at their texts. Don't try to go 
the, in the, in the direction of the ancient aliens, you know, where everything is the result of an alien, right? Um, every building, every weird thing, the Nazca lines, the pyramids, everything was built by aliens. Right. You know, just forget that for now. You know, let's just start from the basics. What did the ancient people actually say? What did they write? And we can go all the way back to ancient Sumer, Babylon, Egypt. We can go pretty far back. It's not just the Bible, you know, which is actually much more recent. We're going to go all the way back to, to the ancient, the most ancient texts we can find. And how did they describe this relationship between humans and the other? And that's what we tried to point out in that first book. You know, among the guests I've had on, you're one of the top researchers when it comes to the Nazis and their exotic technology. We mentioned the the tribe in the Pacific, and I'll discuss that with you afterwards, the cargo cult. You know, they believe uh, that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but a Red Cross aircraft was bringing supplies, was probably commanded by gods from the sky. Why? Because... They didn't have a point of reference to, to determine the craft was man-made and, uh, you know, they were the ones delivering the goods. The same thing probably happened when Christopher Columbus landed on an island in the Caribbean. The natives thought uh, they were gods. Again, no point of reference. So when we think of Roswell or the 1952 flyover over Washington that you were mentioning, we think extraterrestrial craft. These two events happened after the war was over. Now, bear, bear with me for a moment and, and you'll know where I'm heading. There are reports stating that the Nazis escaped to Antarctica, which is an area very difficult to get to unless you have submarines and perhaps exotic technology to get you there. Could it be, Peter, that these craft seen in 1947, 1952, etc., were a show of force by the Nazis from Antarctica, almost as if they were saying, look, we're penetrating, penetrating your airspace, and there's nothing you can do about it, so don't even try to get us or we'll use our wonder weapons against you. And that's probably why Admiral Burt's mission returned earlier than planned. What do you think of this? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> so let me start from, from the beginning. Um, did Nazi scientists escape at the end of the war? Of course they did. We, we brought in a thousand of them under Operation Paperclip, but they, they, they scattered all over the world. We, we know this as for a fact. Uh, we know who they are. We know their names. We know their, their positions. Uh, a number of uh, Nazi rocket scientists, for instance, escaped to Egypt where they helped uh, Nasser's regime jumpstart their space program, and not their space, but their rocket program for weapons of mass destruction. Uh, another bunch of, um, of Nazis wound up in South America. Uh, some were helping Peron develop a, a jet program down there. Uh, and alternate energy uh, ideas also were being discussed in, in, in among these groups of Nazis around the world. So the the, the first facts, the, the, the really solid facts we have are, yes, Nazi scientists did escape at the end of the war. Yes, they did bring their technology with them. Uh, in 1945-1946, the U.S. Congress was investigating a report that they had heard, and this is in the, the official congressional record in great detail that the Nazis had had a meeting in, uh, at uh, the Maison Rouge uh, in France uh, just before the fall of France where the Germans got together and said, okay, we have to expatriate our resources, our technology, our key personnel, our finances for sure, our money. Everything has got to get out of Europe so the Allies don't get it. And the U.S. Congress discovered that over 450 corporations had been set up around the world by the Nazis in order to to, to hide get the all of this to hide the assets and get it away from the the grasp of the Allies. So we know this this was happening. We know this big infrastructure thing was taking place. We know the names of many of the corporations. I mean, it was AEG, it was Thyssen, it was Krupp, it was all these major corporations, but a lot of you know very small corporations that we knew very little about also, but they were part of the war effort. So all of this was happening. All of this was taking place. And at, as the, the, the dust cleared, we had a different enemy. The, the enemy suddenly became the Soviet Union. And so we basically got into bed with all of these scientists and with the, the SS who had survived with all kinds of strange characters, um, you know, war criminals. And we got involved with them in a very big way. So jump ahead now to 1947. Not that far of a jump, but there's Roswell in 47. Could the Nazis have built a flying saucer that quickly 
somewhere overseas and flown it into the United States by 1947. It's a little tricky. Uh, if they had been moving their stuff out of the country in 1944, and if they had enough uh, scientists parked somewhere abroad by 1945-1946, it's possible. The Horton brothers, for instance, were developing um, aircraft uh, that looked a lot like the flying saucers that Kenneth Arnold saw. Uh, they were developing the, the, this type of weird-looking um, sort of bat-wing-shaped aircraft. Uh, they were One of the brothers was in Argentina. Um, another one was in uh, Western Europe negotiating, really, with the Allies. So we know that the, this stuff was on the table. We know that the kind of craft that Kenneth Arnold saw in '47 had been designed – at least the physical contours of it had been designed by Nazi scientists. But weren't they so, in New, Schw New Schwabenland since the, 19, the late 1930s? Didn't they have a base there? The Nazis had been to New Schwabenland, yes. I mean, 1938-39, for the so-called geophysical year, the Nazis had sent uh, a convoy down there, and they littered the place with Nazi flags and everything else with swastika flags, basically claiming the continent for, for the Third Reich. Sure, that... that happened there's no doubt about it and there's no doubt about the the operation that you know we sent down um high jump with admiral bird okay. the problem i have with the admiral bird project is that it made no sense it made no sense politically it made no sense economically why would we have to do this in 1946 the war had just been over we were financially depleted We were closing down a lot of our military bases. We were downsizing the Navy. We were downsizing the military in general. And then suddenly someone gets this, you know, this idea that we're going to send this massive convoy to Antarctica. And we're going to do this, you know, scientific research in Antarctica. Um, we sent down a convoy without the necessary scientific equipment. We sent people down who were not trained for this sort of thing. Plus, we spent a fortune doing this. We went down there. We stayed down there for far less time than we had initially planned, turned around and came back. So, yes, the, high, the Operation High Jump story is very, very suspicious to me. And I've looked over a lot of the documents that they released under High Jump. They had a lot of photographs, a lot of stuff, but it looked like a ma massive sort of cover story to me. You know, especially the fact that they brought down virtually no data that was worthwhile that was you know that paid for this trip um so i'm suspicious of that the nazis had been there i don't know if they stayed there but they certainly did have the u-boat capability of going there i mean a u-boat shows up in the rio de la plata outside of you know of argentina you know months and months after the end of the war and they finally you know surrender themselves Uh, they had just stayed underwater and they'd stayed, you know, uh, traveling around the earth for a long time before they surrendered. Uh, the war was over for Germany in May of 45. And this crew showed up months later in Argentina. So what was that all about? You know, and the story was, well, they didn't want to surrender. They didn't know they were supposed to surrender and all sorts of stories, but they had disappeared. I mean, they basically had disappeared. No one knew where they were until they suddenly show up in Argentina. So if you want to make a case, you can put all of these things together and say, you know, they were up to no good in Antarctica. Maybe they were, maybe they had a base that they maintained since 38. Um, I remember that, for instance, Admiral Dennitz, who then took over as the, for a short time, as the leader of the Third Reich after Hitler killed himself, supposedly. Uh, Dennitz went and had, in, in the years before that, was making speeches Uh, to, to naval officers saying that if anything went wrong in the Third Reich, if, if Hitler was actually in danger of being captured or killed, that the Navy had a fallback plan and they had a paradise where they would take Hitler and his entourage someplace safe to wait out you know, the, the end of the war. So he was talking about this openly to, to naval cadets. And this was the guy in charge of our submarine fleet, of, our, of, the, of the Nazi submarine fleet. And he was, at that time, you know, uh, he became the leader of the Third Reich. He was left basically in the will as the person who was going to, you know, negotiate with the Allies. So what does all this mean? You know, um, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence to suggest that, A, well, we know the Nazi scientists escaped, a lot of them. B, that they went to various foreign countries around the world. Three, 
that they had expressed a lot of interest in Antarctica. Four, that Admiral Danitz himself had said that they you know, had the capabilities, they had secret places stashed around the world where they could have hidden Hitler if they wanted to. And then we have that weird convoy of American ships known as Operation High Jump that, you know, there are official explanations for it, but, you know, you keep looking at it, it doesn't hold water. This was, this was a boondoggle. This happened at a time when we could not afford really to send a convoy of ships anywhere because we had exhausted ourselves during the war. And we were trying to cut costs as much as possible. Truman was desperate to cut costs because the war had cost so much money. Uh, it just was incredible amount of, of raw materials, of resources, of human resources. He was cutting everything back, and yet we have this bizarre expedition to Antarctica that just basically made no sense. Is it safe to say there might be unexplored areas of you know, of this planet where a colony of Nazis may exist today, just like many indigenous tribes live on islands or in the middle of the Amazon forest undisturbed? If the answer is yes... Could many of the physical flying objects so many have reported to have seen, you know, uh, maybe man-made after all? And, and the reason why they're called extraterrestrial, even though governments deny it as swamp gas, is because, once again, we don't have a way to suppress them? Well, look at it this way. Look at all the resources you need to build an airplane, for instance. Just basically, you need the steel, the copper, the wiring, you need um, glass, you know, which we're able to withstand, you know, uh, uh, pressure at high altitudes. You need a lot of stuff. You need machinery. You need, you need a, an entire train of, 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 of resources. You need, you need this and you need it, you know, in really good condition just to build a regular airplane. We don't know what the technology is, for instance, behind some of these sided UFOs, the so-called saucers. Um, what kind of propulsion system do they use? Uh, what materials are they made out of? If they're made out of anything terrestrial, if, they're, if they use propulsion systems that would be familiar to us in some way, then the assumption is they would require basically an entire infrastructure of manufacturing to develop even one of them. Um, so if we look at it from the point of view of, you know, an engineer just designing a manufacturing plan, there's a whole bunch of stuff that they would need in order to make one of these. So we have to, we have two, two ways of looking at it then. Either there's, there is a vast, you know, infrastructure that's in place to help these scientists build these machines, whether it's in Antarctica or Patagonia or in Russia or China or anywhere else. There has to be this infrastructure. There has to be a lot of people involved. It has to be really the equivalent of the Manhattan Project in order to build fleets of these devices because they're seen all over the world. So that's one way of looking at it, which means that it's probably not possible. The other way of looking at it is that this is a technology that is so far beyond anything that we have naturally developed on this planet with our own industry and our own technology that uh, it can be built and flown uh, uh, secretly from secret places, secret bases on, on the planet, only because the technology is itself something that we can't even really begin to conceive of. It's a technology that does not require this, um, this stream of, of manufacturing facilities to support. Um, it doesn't even need fuel, right? So, or not fuel that we understand. So, we have to take the saucer out of, out of our manufacturing capability. If we want to believe the Nazis did it, they're still humans and they still need steel and you know they still need uh, uh, to make gears. They need shops to work with this material. They need you know manufacturing facilities. If they don't have them, they can't build them, which means that someone else is doing the design, the creation, the building, and the flying. So it's someone else, not the Nazis. But the Nazis were involved in creating devices of this nature. They were trying to do that. The Horton brothers, the most famous example, but not the only ones. So people were involved in creating aircraft of this nature, but they were still using technology with which we are already familiar. Jet propulsion, early stages of jet propulsion. The Nazis were the first really to, to experiment completely uh, with jet propulsion machines, devices like that. 
Um, so we know that they were up to date on that, but you know, are, is that all a flying saucer is a, a, a fancy you know jet engine machine? I don't think so, right? The, the physical characteristics, the aeronautical avionic uh, avionics of the thing, would seem to argue against that. So this is another technology. This is something that is beyond what the Nazis had dreamed of doing. But that's not to say there are no human agents involved in the creation of them today. We just don't know. We're we're at a loss for this because the we don't have one of these things in captivity um, that we can show to the world and say this is what we're doing. We may have them in captivity, but we may be having a really hard time in understanding how to fly them. Well, the word Ananerba. I don't speak German. How do you pronounce that word? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, Ananerba, the SS Ananerba. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there were, they, uh, you know, it was a project, you know, in Nazi Germany to research the archaeological and cultural history of the Aryan race. And there's plenty of pictures and photographs of them going around Tibet and many other places. Do you think they found exotic technology written? And that's what James Forrestal. You know, James Forrestal, who sure. you know, allegedly committed suicide, but somebody probably pushed him out of the window in Bethesda, you know, Naval Hospital. Before that, I believe he took as his protege JFK at the time when the war was over. And what they found there, I don't know if they actually went to Pinamunda or where, but they found some exotic technology there. Shortly thereafter, he becomes the, the first Secretary of Defense, but then he goes allegedly crazy, commits suicide, and so on. Do you think that the Nazis had this technology? And if so, where did they get the technology from? Could it be from those expeditions? Well, yes and no. We, we know, for instance, that right at the end of the war in Sweden, there was the phenomenon of the ghost rockets. And the assumption of the Swedes was that these rockets, these weird, strange flying devices, were coming from Pinamunda. The problem is that Pinamunda had been bombed to smithereens um, by by the British Air Force, and those operations had been moved to the to the mountains uh, near in uh, in southern Germany, Austria. Uh, so we have a lot of equipment, Messerschmitt facilities, everything else being taken out and moved underground into these caverns, everywhere from Salzburg up into the uh, up into southern southern Germany. So you have the idea that Pinamunda no longer existed. It was flattened. Um, and of course, the Soviets were moving in that direction as well. So there was this conspiracy theory for 1946-47, that part of that time, 45-46-47, that the Nazis who had been captured by the Soviets had some secret technology and that they were flying these, these rockets, these ghost ships. Um, out of the part of the world where they had initially been working at Pinamunda. It was the same general area of the world, maybe on the Soviet side, and that they were flying these things out, which would indicate they had that technology. Um, but if they had had it, how come it was not deployed during the war itself? Right. This was like shortly after the end. It's like months later, and you have the ghost ships flying over Scandinavia. Uh, we were so concerned about it that you know we sent our own people to Scandinavia to talk to the Swedes about this because we were concerned that the, the Germans did have this technology and that the Soviets might have access to it. And that story is what's really at the base of some of the disinformation that went on in the 1940s and 50s, the whole Cold War stuff, including Roswell, was the, the, the terror that our national security apparatus had, that maybe the Nazis had developed these secret weapons, maybe the Soviets now had access to these weapons as well. And maybe what crashed at Roswell was a Soviet device or a Nazi device built you know, by the Soviets using Nazi scientists and Nazi technology. Where did it all come from was your initial question, and that's why I had to give context for all this. Sorry if I go off into tangents. That's fine. But, um, where did they get the information? Well, if, and this is a big if, this is a, this is speculation, if the people who went on the SS Tibet expedition in 1938, which, remember, was happening at the same time as the Antarctica expedition as well. You have the SS going into Tibet. A bunch of uh, anthropologists and archaeologists, people like that, who are academically trained, are in Tibet itself. They are 
photographing rituals. They are measuring the skulls of Tibetans. They're doing all of this, you know, sort of weird Aryan Nazi kind of, you know, anthropology up there. But they're also collecting a lot of artifacts from the Tibetans. We know from the newspaper reports, and I, I looked at them way back when, when I was writing on Holy Alliance. The newspaper report still exists there at the captured German archives at, in, in the Library of Congress, and excuse me, in the National Archives. And you can read them. They're in German, of course, but you can read that they're bringing back with them. The Nazis are bringing back from this expedition very rare Tibetan texts. They're bringing the Kangjur, which is sort of the the Tibetan Buddhist uh, scriptures, uh, traditionally considered to be 108 volumes. That's sort of a mes- mystical number, but a lot of books. They're bringing back artifacts. They're bringing back um, animals, flora and fauna that they uh, took as well. All of this is bringing, being brought back to Berlin just before the war breaks, just before the, the invasion of Poland uh, and Czechoslovakia. So all of this stuff comes back to Berlin. And these guys are treated as as heroes. It's like a hero's welcome when they come back. Ask yourself, why would the Nazis, why would the Third Reich, when they're on the verge of a major military conflict in which they're going to try to take over all of Europe, why would they spend the time and the money sending a bunch of academics to Tibet, of all places? You know, what's the purpose of that? What is the meaning? You know, Himmler was in charge of this. Himmler, of course, as the head of the SS, Heinrich Himmler, uh, a mystic himself, I mean, a devoted uh, devotee of occultism and mysticism and Asian religions and all of this sort of thing. He, you know, he rubber stamps this thing. He gives the entire approval for this this team to go up there. Now, these were not necessarily nice guys either. Bruno Baeger was one of the people who went on that expedition. Uh, he's in many of the photographs. He, he could be seen measuring the skulls of Tibetan women. Baker comes back after meeting the Panchen Lama, the second highest ranking Lama in Tibet. He comes back from having witnessed these religious ceremonies, talked to the monks and all the rest of it, which for most people would have been an intense sort of spiritual, cultural experience. He comes back from that, and when he's back in Nazi Germany, he starts to create a museum, which is going to be a kind of museum of humanity, an anthropological museum. And he goes to the concentration camps and starts picking out the specimens that he wants sent to the museum. In other words, he's pointing at prisoners, living prisoners in the camps, and he's selecting them on the basis of their height, their weight, their bone structure, their ethnicity, to be, you know, skeletal material that he's going to be, you know, uh, showing in his museum. They're going to be on exhibit there. So these people have to be killed. And they have to be defleshed and then, you know, the skeletal material cleaned up and the skeletons then placed in his museum. This is a this is a butcher, this is a war criminal. But he was part of that Tibet expedition in nineteen thirty eight, measuring skulls. And he was measuring skulls, I guess, almost to the end of his days. This is a guy who didn't go to prison after that and who claimed that he was a good friend of the Dalai Lama, which eventually they sort of distance themselves from. But he had been writing these articles about how great it was to be in Tibet back in the 30s. Um, This is the kind of mentality you're dealing with. So when you have an expedition like that, and they're bringing back books, and they're bringing back scriptures, and they're bringing back all of this material, photographing religious rituals, if you were the head of the SS, what value would you find in this material, right? You're not going to convert to Buddhism. That's not the point. The point is you're looking for something. You're looking for a technology. You're looking for data that's buried in all of this to see how it can be useful to prosecute the war. What is there in all of this material that we can weaponize? Because that would have been Himmler's major concern. He has to justify these expenses somehow. He has to justify what he's doing and these these sort of boondoggles that he's sending all over the world. It wasn't just to Tibet. He had people all over the place looking for artifacts and bringing them back. It's because they saw there was a kind of technology embedded in this material and a kind of technology of consciousness. Himmler was stripping the ideology away from all of this to try to find out what were they actually doing. He was not concerned about the niceties of Buddhist theology. 
or philosophy. What he really wanted to know was how did the monks do the stuff that they were to- they it had been said they had been able to do, such as you know uh, uh, travel to distant places, levitate, uh, see the future, see the past, um, bilocate, all these various things that the Tibetans were you know believed to have been capable of because of the of the journeys of people like Alexandra David Neal and some of the other explorers who went to Tibet and came back with these outrageous stories. So Himmler wanted to know how they did that. Think for a second, if there was material in those texts, in the Kangjur, or whatever other books they brought back with them, whatever, whatever artifacts they brought back, what if that material was there that would enable someone to manipulate consciousness and what if consciousness is part of whatever makes the phenomenon the ufo phenomenon tick has something to do with consciousness with a different perception of reality what if that's the key to all of this and what if this was what himmler was interested in and this is what the reich stumbled upon and it's not just in tibet as i say they were all over the world they were in egypt they were all over the Middle East. They were in South America. They were in Asia. They were collecting material from everywhere. The Ananerba was spread out with different types of, uh, uh, of missions and, and, uh, and expeditions to various places. So they were accumulating this knowledge. They, they were accumulating all of it. I mean, Himmler had a duplication uh, of the, the lance, you know, the Spear of Destiny, uh, on his desk as a kind of a paperweight. This guy was into all of this stuff in a big way. But not because he was a devoted Catholic. That's not why he wanted a copy of the Spear of Destiny. And it wasn't because he was a devoted Buddhist that he wanted this material from Tibet. He had another agenda. Well, a few words come to mind after their visits around the world. Alchemy, transmutation, vimanas. I mean, all the things, as you say, that could help him prosecute the war. But the, the, the world loved the swastika until Hitler stole it. What is the story behind the swastika, the Hindu symbol, and why did Hitler inverted it and used it as a Nazi symbol? Well, in the first place, the swastika is pretty much known worldwide. I mean, you'll find it almost everywhere. And in fact, the Nazis used that fact as a kind of propaganda tool to say, well, you see, the Aryan race was everywhere. We once owned the entire, con- the entire uh, globe, the entire planet. That was their propaganda hook, and you'll see that in some of the old uh, films that the Ananerba made and produced, showing you know swastikas on pottery in various places and all of that. So that was part of their idea. The swastika is considered by archaeologists and anthropologists to represent the sun. The problem with that, I mean, it's an easy association to make. It's a solar symbol, according to most people. But from our point of view, if you look at the swastika, when have we ever seen the sun spin? <laughs> you know, the, the swastika has arms, you know. Or the moon. Or the moon or anything else radiating out from, this, from, the, from the center. Uh, the idea is that it's the sun spinning. Well, the sun doesn't spin, you know, um, unless we kind of think, you know, the rising and the setting of the sun, but that's not really spinning. So why would that be, why would that be a sun symbol? A saucer would spin, you know, a vehicle spins. Um, This type of stuff, you know, would make a bit more sense. But regardless of that, which goes back to my theory that there was contact at some very ancient point in human history and everything, you know, came out of that contact. But the swastika in Asia, I mean, I've seen it all the time. I mean, I used to live out there and I still travel out there frequently. And you'll go to Buddhist temples and Taoist temples and, you know, and you'll see the swastika everywhere. You'll see the swastika as part of architecture. You'll see the swastika as signs on buildings for good luck, for auspiciousness, as they call it. But when it comes to Hitler specifically, um, the swastika was a favorite symbol uh, in Germany even before Hitler got involved with the Nazi party and with all of that, even before he was in the army in World War I, the swastika was kind of a symbol that the Theosophical Society used on their publications. And that's, we're talking going back to 1875. Uh, you'll find that the swastika was used a lot. This was considered to be the symbol of the Aryans. But from, from the point of view of theosophy, this was kind of a spiritual race 
um, you know, that had was the next step in evolution, uh, in planetary and racial evolution. It was not race and specifically as white versus any other, but of the human race in general entering as a, a state of of enlightenment and evolution. So for them, the swastika was used as that kind of a symbol. So they were already using it. And then there were other German mystics that were starting to use the swastika. And they saw this symbol in theosophical terms, but then they modified it to represent their own people, Aryans in the sense of a white race. Uh, the word Iran, for instance, the country of Iran, is, it comes from the same root of Arya. And the Iranians are not Semitics. They're not Arabs or Jews. They're, you know, quote-unquote Caucasian. They're white in terms of this, this concept of Aryanism. So the Germans thought there was kindred spirits there. The Aryan race was therefore the white race specifically and not any of the other races on the planet. Or the Northern Indians. Or the Northern Indians, right, precisely, which, according to the Aryan invasion theory, came from Iran anyway, right? So there's that, that, uh, that old theory that uh, India was invaded by the Aryans, and the Aryans came from Central Asia, and they came from Iran, uh, ultimately. So all of these ideas are all wrapped up in this, this kind of armchair anthropology that was taking place at the end of the, of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. When... World War I came to an end, and Germany lost the war. The communists were in position to take over Germany as well. Uh, there were socialist and communist movements all throughout Germany. Um, German soldiers came back from defeat uh, at the Eastern Front from Russia, marching back into Germany, uh, being told, you were defeated by your leaders. You were defeated by the oligarchs. You were defeated by the bankers. You know, you, the German soldier, was not defeated. Uh, we have to band together with the working men of all countries, unite in that whole thing. So that's going on in world, at the end of World War I. In 1918 and in 1919, uh, Berlin is in danger of going completely communist. Uh, red flags are raised over the the shipyards, uh, the, the British, uh, excuse me, the, the German Navy. And in Munich, Munich itself, the city in Bavaria, is now in danger also of going completely communist. The communist gangs are taking over the government of Munich. And in order to stop them, uh, various different types of uh, what they call Freikorps or, you know, uh, independent militias rose up to fight the, the, uh, the communist militias who were taking over the city of Munich. One of the prominent uh, opponents of communism was a, an occult secret society called the Thule Gesellschaft, the Thule Society. And this was run by a lot of weird sort of crackpot you know, German occultists who were involved in anything occult, but always with an anti-Semitic, anti-communist and pro-German slant. And it was run by a guy called von Sabatendorf, Rudolf von Sabatendorf. So Rudolf von was one of the guys who created this concept of a swastika as the symbol for his group. And if you see the old 1919 um, broadsides published by the Thule Gesellschaft, you will see a dagger, and superimposed on the dagger is a swastika, and oak leaves around it. And this would all become incorporated into the Third Reich and into the Wehrmacht later, into the Nazi party. So his group, on April 30th of 1919, uh, was attacked by the communists. Seven people were taken out of the Thule Society headquarters, put up against a wall at a local high school, and shot on April 30th, 1919. This triggered a massive uh, resistance against the communists. So the Thule Society then went out into the streets. They had been hiding guns and weapons all this time. Now they're fighting the communists. But to help them, there's another group of militia that comes into the city. And this group is wearing swastikas painted onto their helmets. And they're marching uh, into Munich to help the Thule Society fight the communists. And, of course, they win. The communists are driven out. Uh, and the Tula Society and the Stahlhelm Freikorps and the other Freikorps groups that are there then declare victory. And this is the milieu in which Adolf Hitler then cuts his political teeth because he joins a group called the National 
Socialist German Workers' Party, the German Workers' Party, basically the DAP, in the basement of the same hotel where the Thule Society is meeting. And they, they have a lot of the same members. And they all join together, and Hitler then is debating what kind of design he wants to use uh, for the symbol for his new political party. And the swastika is one of them. That's the one that was used by the Thule Society, and he eventually adopts that. And that becomes the sign of the new of the new party. But this is not something new for Adolf Hitler. Hitler was already writing poetry, uh, worshipping the the Nordic gods, Thor and Wotan and all of this, while he was in the trenches during World War One. Some of that poetry has survived. So Hitler was kind of already involved with this while well, he was still uh, impoverished in Vienna before the war, while well, he was trying to make his living as an artist. He was reading all sorts of occult magazines. We know this now. There's no doubt about it. He was reading a magazine called Ostara, uh, which was full of anti-Semitic literature combined with an occult point of view. Um, so he already was open to all of these ideas and incorporated easily the swastika. Once he incorporated the swastika as the symbol of the party, there was no stopping it. This became a very powerful symbol. Imagine any political party in the United States today with with a symbol that powerful. You know, all we have basically are elephants and donkeys, right? We yeah, don't have, it. you know, that's it. We don't have something like the swastika. Any political party here that would have something like that, you know, something as powerful as that would be a force to be reckoned with. And in Germany, it just took off. This was a very potent symbol, so potent that we can't see it today without thinking of Hitler, without thinking of the Nazis, without thinking of the Holocaust. But if you go to Asia, there is no such association. You know, it's a religious association. It's Buddhism. Buddhism, right. But, you know, it's interesting how Bolshevism was spreading around that time. And even right now, I see it, and this is a quick parenthesis, but what I see in Venezuela, it's almost like uh, we're seeing the Bolsheviks taking over once again. But uh, before we take our one and only break, let me just read this, and I'll get your answer on the other side. You know, I sometimes wonder if the notion of waiting for governments to disclose the, the ET presence is, is absurd. Why do so many people believe that they control the, you know, that the governments control the access to alien contact? Is this a wise position? Not to mention, I don't see any advantage whatsoever for any government disclosing the reality of alien contact, because if they did, they would also have to admit the I word, impotence. Impotence to handle them militarily or even diplomatically, which would challenge all social institutions and would create social chaos and, and governments are there for one reason to guarantee domestic tranquility but i'll get your answer on the other side how can people buy the book and all your other great books peter wow thank you um of course amazon is you know is the monster that controls all literature these days um you can get my books easily on amazon.com or if you have any other uh you can sort of contact me directly of course i have a website peterlavenda.com but um probably amazon and bookstores i've seen uh copies of of secret machines in barnes and noble around the country so uh and in other places around the world as well so your local bookstore may actually have copies of secret machines folks don't go anywhere it's a fascinating talk with peter lavenda we haven't talked in about six years ever since we quote unquote dumped osama bin laden into the ocean that was the last time he and i talked but much more when we come back this is mel fabregas and you are listening to veritas don't go anywhere thanks for listening to part one of this very important veritas interview to listen to the rest head on over to the member section or subscribe at veritasradio.com you don't want to miss the rest don't forget to visit the Veritas store where you can find great products like pure organic sulfur, rebounders, turmeric, and other great supplements. Thank you.